The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads! Quit trying to figure out the caffeine-to-code ratio and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 263 with guest Udi DeHaan, recorded live Tuesday, August 7, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bringing world-class .NET and SharePoint training on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's noticing that all Microsofties start every sentence with, So, uh... Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin here on the East Coast in New London, Connecticut, doing the intro for the first time without my co-host, Richard Campbell. He, uh, he's going to be here to talk to Udi in a few minutes, but uh, he couldn't make the intro, and we record them separately. So um, I want to just get right into Better Know Framework. All right. Today's Better Know a Framework class, for all you uh, .NET Rockheads out there, is the timer class, but this isn't the system timers timer. No, it's the system threading timer. And the system threading timer is a little more lightweight than the system timers timer. And I was alerted to this by uh, an email, which came from John Donnellan. Hi, John. How are you? And it's a long email with mostly praise, so um, I'm just going to pick out what he said about system threading timer. He said it's not a full replacement for the system timer's timer, but it is simpler and lighter. He says, I'm also one of the people who thinks the system.timers.timer may very occasionally have caused some aberrant behavior. And he's with Stacy W. in this post, which you can find at shrinkster.com slash rv3 which is a, uh, a post on Channel 9 about System Timer's Timer and System Threading Timer comparing the two. 
I personally uh, hadn't really heard about this before. In fact, no, I had heard about it, seen it there, but I just did sort of ignored it because I thought, well, I already have a timer. But it turns out that there are some differences and uh, it's worth getting to know. So that is pretty much the intro for today. We're going to pick up uh, with the show with Richard and Udi right now. All right, Richard, let's uh, bring on Udi. Udi Dahan is the software simplest, a Microsoft Solutions Architect MVP, a recognized .NET expert, and a member of both the Microsoft Architects and Technologists Councils. Udi provides clients all over the world with training, mentoring, and high-end architecture consulting services, specializing in service-oriented, scalable, and secure .NET architecture design and web services. He's a member of the International Association of Software Architects, the IASA, a frequent conference presenter, the Dr. Dobbs-sponsored expert on web services, SOA and XML, and a regularly published author. Udi can be contacted via his blog, www.udidahan.com. Welcome, Udi. Well, thank you, Carl. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks to Richard for, for getting you lined up here. Um, we met at DevTeach. And uh, one thing led to another, and pretty soon Richard was saying, hey, we got to get Udi on the show. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Richard has a way with words, doesn't he? Yeah. The thing that was interesting about DevTeach in Montreal was there was a contingent from Israel. That's right, there yeah. was. I mean, yeah. yourself, uh, who else was there? Rayo uh, Sharov. And Oranini. And Oranini. That's right. It actually turned out that um, Scott Bellware who uh, who organized it, or who organized the track, uh, sent an email to Roy and said, um, privately, without actually talking to us, he said, well, you know, it would be great if I could get uh, Udi and Oren to come too. And um, Roy, in the way that uh, Israelis do, uh, immediately CC'd us and said, yeah, okay, we're good to go. Not <laughs> even really wanted to formally invite us anyway. He was just sort of like floating an idea by. He said, you know... You know, I was thinking about this. What do you think? And before I knew it, like, yeah, okay, we're coming. <laughs> we uh, talked to Roger Sessions a little bit uh, ago on architecture, enterprise architecture. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was talking about his idea of simplicity and complexity and how you can simplify applications. He First of all, he has a mathematical analysis tool for measuring than quantifying the complexity of an application. And it has to do with the number of variables and the number of states that those variables can possibly be in and how they exponentially go up. And uh, by splitting those into separate applications and making these islands of isolation, the complexity goes down significantly. And uh, immediately, SOA came to mind, service orientation. Okay. And uh, he he didn't argue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah is is it really is this really what we're talking about? SOA is just a way to simplify and and cut things into discrete pieces that make sense for the application being designed. Well, you sort of get get right to the heart of the matter and say, you know, well, what is SOA? And the answer is, well, it depends on who you ask because there really isn't very much agreement on what it is. Um, for the most part, you got vendors slapping on SOA and ESB tags on every single product that they ever had and ever dreamed of. 
and you got system integrators that are trying to market it as their own methodology. Everybody wants in on this huge cash cow that has descended upon the industry. So I could really only give you what what I think SOA is and, and what it's good for. And um, so, so, so I'll just do that, and we'll sort of take it from there. Um, without getting into the whole SOA as an architectural style type of thing, um, I, I want to sort of step back a bit and say that the whole point of SOA is to sort of bring order where there was chaos. That's the way that I view it. And I think that a lot of the chaos that, was, that we've been feeling in IT for quite some time, uh, its origin is really in the business. Um, a lot of the business guys don't have their act together and what they want us to build. I knew it was all their fault, Richard. I told you. I told you, man. We're developers. We're right. They're wrong. Yeah. (laughs) And and, and the fact of the matter is I've been suspecting as much for quite some time when uh, I think it was about a year, year and a half ago, I, I started spending more time with my enterprise architect friend and most of all, what they do has to do with the business side. I said, you know, okay, what, what's going on with the enterprise architecture thing? And they told me, Udi, you wouldn't believe the kind of mess that's going on on the business side. Forget about IT. The way that business views their own business is a mess. You're talking about duplication everywhere and people that are doing forms that look almost the same but meet totally different things in different departments. It's a mess. I said, okay, so you know what, this whole SOA solving the IT business alignment thing, we could be perfectly aligned with business, and that's the reason why everything's so crappy. Huh, yeah, because business isn't necessarily efficient. We get back to that whole, I did exactly what you asked, but it wasn't exactly. what you wanted. Right. Or what you needed. Yeah. So, um, so sort of hitting back to the to the SOA thing, I think SOA has to work on on both of these levels together. It has to help business get their act together and it has to help IT reflect that a little bit better. And the concept to do that is a service. And the service is really just an, an abstraction for saying a cohesive set of business capabilities. All right? So one of the problems that we see with businesses today is everybody's working with customers, right? You got the sales guys, you got the marketing guys, you got the customer care people. Everybody has to do something with customers. So the question is, who owns it? Who gets to define it? Who gets to change the processes that work with it? And at the business level, nobody really knows how to answer that. So SOA at the business level is really about answering those difficult questions. From a business perspective, who's responsible for what? And then from an IT perspective, pretty much just reflecting that. Now, one of the interesting things that I found is that there's a really nice interplay between um, the concepts and the techniques that we use to model services from a technical perspective in helping the business guys get their act together. Um, let me take a concrete example that really brings the thing home. That's transactions. All the IT people know now with service orientation and all the vendors, we've all agreed transactions across service boundaries are bad. Don't do that, Right. Yeah, it, right. well, it's, yeah. Yeah, we don't want to do that. Especially if things take time and there's asynchronicity involved. And... Exactly. Now, the business guys come along and say, okay, well, we view the world in a different way. And we divide things up in, in a totally different way where we really need you to keep all this data altogether consistent. 
So when they come with requirements that force us to create transactions that cross service boundaries, one or both of us is wrong. And we got to sit down together until we agree so that the services that we eventually have don't have transactions going between them. And that whole type of back and forth, back and forth is the SOA methodology, if you want to call it. All right? So the SOA methodology is just trying to stuff square pegs into round holes as best you can. Is this what you're saying? That's what I think I hear you saying. No, it's it's really getting um, two different people, one from the IT and one from the business, to agree it's either square or it's round or it's something else, but we have to agree. And there are certain properties that we know. For instance, we don't have transactions that cross service boundaries. Okay? It's really that simple. Another thing that we're going to talk about is that we want asynchronous interactions. And again, we do that for performance and transaction reasons and scalability and all the wonderful IT concerns that we have to deal with. But eventually it gets reflected back up the business. So that's sort of like the, the top level of SOA in solving it. All right? So that's if you ask people like at SAP what they mean when they talk about SOA, that's what they mean. They're all business process reengineering and business process management and all those types of things. That's the high-level, pie-in-the-sky SOA. And the fact of the matter is developers shouldn't see that at all. They really shouldn't care about that stuff. So the services really should sort of come down to the developers and say, okay, these are the services that we've agreed upon. Developers shouldn't really be about designing these high-level business services. Right, that's the you architect's know, the, job. The, the bottom level is really a lot more, okay, you know, what messages do these services send to each other? And what workflows are we going to be implementing between these services? That's where the developers come in. So developers are more about implementing the services that the top-level IT and business guys agreed that that's what they needed, and doing that in a scalable, robust, flexible, maintainable way. New York never sleeps, so why should you? Introducing Sleepless in New York, the ultimate SharePoint weekend, September 7th through 9th in New York City. Infusion Development, world-class Wall Street technology consultants and published SharePoint book authors wants to fly you to New York City free for the ultimate training weekend. They'll even put you up at a first-class hotel, though you probably won't see much of it. For two days and nights, you'll live SharePoint and Silverlight with training, collaboration, and even competition. You'll participate in lab-offs, which will test your speed and skills, ultimately deciding who moves on to the big mystery game show. The winner will receive Insomniac, the developer's computer that never sleeps. And trust me, it's awesome. You'll also be busy trading ideas with Microsoft MVPs and rubbing shoulders with Richard and me. Hey, if knowledge is power, we just offered you the mothership. Think you got what it takes? Apply now at infusion.com slash sleepless in NY. The deadline is Tuesday, August 14th, to apply for Sleepless in New York, the ultimate SharePoint weekend, September 7th through 9th in New York City. You talked about transactions and sitting down with the business people and trying to hash this stuff out. Obviously, the the transactional tools that we have in our relational databases aren't doing the trick. But is there any – do you – you know, what happens if something in the process of a – 
of a, a long running workflow, let's say, you know, sends up the red flag and something has to get sent, set back or sent back or rolled back. Is that stuff that happens, you know, uh, as part of the service itself? Is this stuff that you're writing yourself as a developer? I mean, because obviously you don't have that kind of control across the whole process. Okay. Um, that's a great question. In terms of workflow, um, because we're not doing transactions across the service boundaries, that means that all the transactions are inside the service. The right. next thing that we know is that we don't want to have uh, transactions that take a long time and that lock a whole bunch of resources, Right. which means that each transaction is really just a step of the workflow that occurs sure. inside it. Sure. All right? So if we're going to be talking about rollbacking a transaction, it'll be the same kind of simple rollback that we've been doing up until this point. Like we tried to get to row in the database, it wasn't there, roll back the transaction. Right, That's but what it. about the previous six steps that we did and, and right, other now services? The previous six steps were business-level steps, and they actually succeeded. If we're talking about some sort of order processing scenario, we actually sent a person to the, to the warehouse to get those books. Those books are no longer in the warehouse. Yeah. They're, shi- they're sitting on the shipping dock. You can't roll that back automatically. Yeah, you're probably okay. not gonna you're, you're probably not gonna charge the card after you pack it and ship it. Yeah, right. You're probably so, gonna charge the so, card first. <laughs> so when you're talking about this kind of long running workflow, there is really no rollback. Right. So that's just saying, okay, well, something failed. Turn that into a business level fear and come to the business guy. And say, hey, look, what happens? When uh, right, we right. finally go and get the books from the warehouse, the customer calls and, and cancels at that the point, order. The customer decided to cancel the order. Yeah. What do we do then? Right. Like, uh, go put the books back. Like, yeah, but do we charge them or not? Or how much? Is there a, a cancellation fee? Is it like 5%, 10%? What do we do? Right. So it's out of the realm of the transaction another... and now it's in the realm of the business domain. Right. Yeah. So the, the, it's the same old. From a developer's perspective, we're doing these short-lived transactions that do a single business action, and that's it. And then we just sort of string all these business actions together, and we get a nice long-running workflow. But there's really no magic rollback button that that the database will do that'll make the whole business roll back like it was 20 days ago. Exactly. Truth. Truth, Richard. This is what he speaks. Well, and, and getting back into the reality that a canceled transaction isn't actually a canceled transaction. It's another transaction. It's really a reversing transaction, right? Right. The customer ordered and they canceled. Right. And and you want to keep a record of that. You don't actually want to roll it back and make it go away. Right, right. You want to see both those steps. Yeah. Especially if you've already shipped the books, Right. <laughs> If you really ship them when they cancel, <laughs> <laughs> that little uh, that little exercise that we went through is quite um, quite illuminating. I mean, it, it's sort of like the the whole. This is what you mean by SOA. I mean, I get it. You're you're sitting down and uh, sort of separating what the the services are from what the business is in a in a logical manner that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like I said, there's sort of two two levels here of SOA, and the problem is that they're sort of um, that you use the same term and we use the same language uh, to describe this, to describe different things, and then everybody gets confused, obviously, right? 
same thing happened when components came along. Everybody wanted to do components, including the business people. <laughs> it's always those business people. I mean, everybody wants to do what everybody's talking about, right? It's like every like you you come to come and say, do you have a Web 2.0 strategy? And the CEO says, hell yeah, we got a Web 2.0 strategy. You got Ajax and everything. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay. But, you know, everybody's talking about it, so he's got to talk about it too. Sure. I heard about it on .NET Rocks. That's how I know about it. (laughs) So are we talking about specific software, or is this just basically a practice? Um, Well, you could say that it's, it's definitely a practice. It's a way of analyzing the problem domain. Right. Okay? Now, and, that, and that's probably the, the big difference that SOA comes differently from enterprise application integration, which was all the rage, I think, was five years ago, something like that. That was five, six years ago, was EAI's heyday. And we had EAI brokers, and everybody was doing that in terms of integration. So, and, and that's where BizTalk really was Microsoft's main entrance into the field. Right. Now, the, the main difference was EAI was all about saying, okay, these are the applications that are out there. Let's hook them together. Let's, let's, let, let, let's do some integration. We're not going to change anything that's there. If there's something that's fundamentally flawed in what application is in charge of what, we don't deal with that. Okay? We're, we're not about finding that out, saying the way things are supposed to be. Let's just get those bytes flowing back and forth and back and forth. And the problem with that was that, you know, you just put a man in the middle that exposed all your worst problems. So that's one of the reasons why EAI sort of sort of fell over, because it sort of made clear how bad things were, but it didn't do anything about fixing them. So SOA, from an integration perspective, sort of says, okay, so we're going to find out what's wrong, and we're going to find out that there's, there's these duplication in responsibility between these applications, and we're going to describe a way of fixing that. So that's in terms of a practice. This is how you go about doing SOA. Now, in order to actually get the technology to work in terms of an SOA, you're going to need some kind of way to, pa- to pass the messages around. All right? Now, we have a bunch of ways of getting bits and bytes across the network. That's really not a problem. But if we're talking about certain kinds of messaging semantics, and I'm going to talk about one specifically here that I harp on a lot, and that's publish subscribe. Now, I, I don't know, there, there may be some people from the Java side that were more familiar with uh, Publish Subscribe, but if we go back to the days of Com Plus, I don't know if you guys remember, there was something called Loosely Coupled Events. Right, yeah. You remember that? Yep. That's Publish Subscribe. That's Publish Subscribe on top of MSNQ. Right. It is. Right? So when when we're looking at things in that perspective, what's so nice about Publish Subscribe is that if I'm a publisher, I don't really care about who the other subscribers are, right? I don't need to know where they are, what they do. Just we got this infrastructure thing that's going to make sure that when he says subscribe, someone's going to know about that. And every time I publish a message, it'll get to where it needs to go. And the reason that this is so important is that if you're talking about, I don't know, maybe 10 services that you got hooked together, um, if you're going to be hooking every one to every other one, we're talking about how many, I don't, is it nine, n times n minus 1 divided by 2, how many is that? Like 
500 or so connections. A lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a lot. That's only with 10 services, right? It doesn't scale. Right. And then you say, okay, now, now let's do that. Okay, like, how many big corporations have more than 10 services? They all raise their hand. Who has more than 100? They all raise their hand. Who has more than 1,000? They all raise their hand. So we realize <laughs> that we can't, we really just can't do this point-to-point connection thing between everybody. It doesn't work. So in terms of a specific technology stack, we really need something that can cut these connections down to make them loosely coupled. So that's what we'd be looking for in a technology. And the, the, the three-letter acronym that has taken its space is ESB, Enterprise Service Bus. And all that really means is when you check out the word enterprise, which really means really big, <laughs> and service, which means what SOA is talking about, all we're really left with is a bus. Right. And the, the main difference between bus and all the other kind of communi- communication types we've got, a bus supports publish, subscribe. Hmm, so sure does. ESB is really just, you know, publish, subscribe between services. Not much else. And that's what we need in terms of technology. But how does it overcome the point-to-point problem? What it does is it does a certain level of intermediation. So um, let's go back a ways in terms of technology. Let's not talk about ESBs and MSMQ and all that newfangled stuff. Let's go back to the good old days when we were writing UDP, right? We had UDP multicast. We could do public subscribe back then. Right. We don't need any of these newfangled MSMQ, TIPCO, BizTalk, Fancy dancy things that cost tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Layer two will save you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and just for the record, most of the new the new technologies are built on top of UDP multicast. Really? Okay. So in terms of that, that, that that's really all, all that it's talking about. Making sure that the person that's listening listens in a generic kind of way instead of saying hello, I'm a service server, and this is my IP address, and I hope to God that that won't change because, God forbid, then everything else will break. Right. right. Send me messages here until its hard disk goes down, and then you got to rebuild the hard disk, rebuild the server, and then they say, well, okay, we don't, let's just put up a new server because that'll be a whole lot faster. But it's got a new IP address, right? And everything's broken. Okay. And then we got to take everybody down and go around and change all the co- the conf- configuration files and get it up again. Haven't these people heard of DNS? So, oh yeah, that 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 works good, but only if you control everything, right? Right. And speaking and of the, all the, that, the problem once it, once again is, well, what happens if you publish your entry too soon? Okay, like that's never going to happen. Hmm. Okay, now we got to change that. Crap, got to take everybody down again. And these are mission-critical systems, okay? So we, we really need something a little bit coarser green than that. So UDP and requires a port, doesn't it? So you're still punching through the firewall with UDP? It well, the whole re- issue of firewalls with UDP is a problem. But, so, um, I mean, it, open it up, but are firewalls this, that much of a problem anymore, or does everybody realize that, you know, hey, port 80 is dangerous too? Um, firewalls are still problematic. The security guys are more stringent than ever. And there are certain systems where they don't even want to hear about publish subscribe because they say that that's too unsecure because you may have some illicit subscriber that is picking up data that it shouldn't be seeing. 
Right. And maybe we need to define exactly what UDP multicast looks like, too. I mean, you've talked about the idea. You've sort of detailed the point to point where everybody has an IP address and I only communicate from one point to another. Yeah. But the big thing with UDP multicast is you're actually sending a message to a whole, say, subnet. Right. And as long right. as anybody that's on that subnet is listening can get that message. So one send multiple receivers. And it's connectionless, too. You just basically send the message. It's just as close to here, <laughs> have that's this, right. as you can possibly get. And that's what makes it so scalable. Right. The downside so, is you don't necessarily know who's listening, which is why the security guys don't like it. And it's not yep. guaranteed delivery. Right. Right. Yeah. But then again, there's so many other things out there that are not guaranteed delivery when you really look at them, they're not durable messaging. So, like, TCP is guaranteed delivery unless the other guy, you know, crashes in the middle. Then it's not guaranteed delivery anymore. And you got HTTP, which is built on top of TCP, which is pretty much the same thing, right? So you, even though those connection-oriented protocols, they don't have that either. So even if you do all sorts of retries and stuff like that, Say, okay, so I've got the message and I want to send it to him, but then he crashes. So I'm going to sit around and wait with that, with that message until he gets back up again. And then I crash. True. Crap, we lost the message. Yeah. Oh, what was in that message? A million dollar order? Oh, we're (laughs) in trouble. Oh, gee. Hey, do you find that the horizontal scroll bar is the most annoying thing when you're trying to read that impossibly long line of code? Well, Maybe a 19-inch LCD monitor would help. Telerik challenges you to explore their new reporting product and have a chance to give your workstation a facelift. A 19-inch NEC monitor could be yours if you answer a few easy multiple-choice questions about Telerik reporting. Just spend a few minutes and see how easily you can generate Windows, Web, and PDF reports. Play with the drag-and-drop data binding. Experiment with Telerik's acclaimed CSS-like customization of reporting items. The reporting tool is fast and compact and very easy to deploy with a mere X-copy. Even if you don't get top marks in the quiz, you can still be a winner. The modest score of seven correct answers out of 11 questions secures you a complimentary Telerik reporting developer license that you can use in your personal and professional projects. So go to Telerik.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a new monitor. So your point is well taken that just because it's not reliable at the at the protocol level, at the at the lower down further down in the stack, doesn't mean that it's Reliable. You know what I'm saying. I think I said it right. I'm not sure now. Um, (laughs) Data payloads. This is an issue, isn't it? I mean, data sets are out, obviously, ties you to .NET. But what about... What about objects? What about XML? I mean, we like... Clemens likes... uh, Clemens Vasters likes big XML blobs. You know, single services that take a single argument. Big XML blob. What's uh, is is that is that a good way to go? Well, I, I guess it depends on what problems you're trying to solve. One of the big problems that are out there with XML deserialization is that it is really unforgiving when the structure changes even a little bit. So yeah, for people that. who've been through, 
who've been starting to work with WCF, they've noticed that that like even in code, if they switch the order of their uh, the members of a message, then it can blow up on them. Well, you know, okay. anybody who's edited a config file knows how picky XML is. Anybody who tried to get remoting working in yeah. the early days of .NET, oh my God, I pulled my hair out for weeks. Yeah. So, in that respect, saying that um, what you want, what you want, is the infrastructure to do all sorts of magic and then give you uh, a ready-made object is something of a problem. Um, there are other ways around it that can be supported by the infrastructure, and that's if they didn't use something like XML deserialization, but rather use something like XPath to pick out the specific bits that of XML that it does know should be in there. So even if you get data members that are added and some that are uh, their order has been removed, XPath is a lot more forgiving in that respect. So, but, but that's really more of an infrastructure detail rather than something that you should be worried about when you are designing your services. Yeah. So, because we're, we're really talking about, you know, what does an interface to a service really look like? For, first, from a conceptual level, then, then we can sort of go down and say, okay, uh, this is what we want from the technology. Right. So, um, well, I live in that like detail said, world, you know, so, and a lot of our listeners do too. We, oh, you know, absolutely. We get we get ting- we get dinged when we we're too high level and abstract, and we get dinged when we're too low level. So <laughs> we like to serve it up a little. Oh, absolutely! No, I'm not saying that we need to ignore one or the other, but rather by um, deciding what the problem is, we can go looking for a good solution, right? Rather than having data sets versus custom object debates on and on and on and on. Sure. Uh, when both of them are are really just solving different problems. So, you know, if we know what the problem is, then we can get a much better handle on the solution. So if we're talking about what a service looks like, a service receives messages. And the message is really two two different kinds of data. Um, what you want done, I want to add an order, I want to update the customer's address, I want to uh, change a shipping address, some sort of business level thing that describes what it is that you want to happen and then inside or under that title you have all the relevant data okay that's that's a message it's just a simple structure okay no, nothing really okay. fancy about it so you could say okay well that's a custom object well it's not really an object because it doesn't really have any behavior it's just a data structure okay now that's what the service wants to receive from a logical level. And now if that's from an infrastructure perspective, transformed to XML doc literal or just plain old XML or binary, and if that's transported over HTTP or TCP or UDP or MSMQ or God knows what else, um, from a logical perspective, that isn't really an issue. So what we really want to do is just to, to, have, to send these logical entities that are called messages back and forth between us. To, to contrast that with something, for instance, like you brought up with remoting, um, we won't be doing any Marshall by ref objects. So I give you an object, you set a bunch of properties, and I magically see those. Right. We won't have any of that between services. Right. Um, so, so, so getting back to, that's your logical contract. And what you'd want is for the infrastructure to magically make it so. 
Um, if it wants to use XML serialization, do XML. If you want to use XPath for deserialization, do that. You want to send it binary encoded, do that. So all but we all we really want in saying from my perspective as a developer, someone says, okay, send this message. And okay, you know, just hand it off to somebody to say what I want done rather than how I want it done. And WCF does a lot of that, but unfortunately today it doesn't support that XPath picky uh or not picky uh get only the information you want out and if there's a, any other information or the order is changed, don't worry about that. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure does. So the bottom line is, depending on the depending on the architecture, depending on the situation, you're going to have different things. So the answer is, it depends. <laughs> um, not so much. Well, the, although it does depend. Specifically, consultants like like giving that answer. Yeah. Um, I, I've been on the receiving end of that answer a number of times. Yeah. And I'm like. Yeah, well, it depends doesn't get the system done. Yeah. Right. Right. It, it depends doesn't pay anybody's paycheck except yours. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the answer that, 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 that I'm suggesting here is a, from a logical level, um, all you're doing is sending and receiving messages. And messages are just plain old classes. You know, they, they have a name. It's called update customer address message. Right. And inside it, it has, uh, the customer ID and it has the new customer's address. That's what a message looks like. That's what I'd want a message to look like. And I'd want, to, I'd want my service to receive an object that looks like that. I'd want infrastructure that made that happen for me. Some kind of WCF, but a little bit smarter type of thing. So, and I'd want the ability to say, I want it as XML, like as in doc literal, I want XML raw, I want this, I want that but I don't want to muck around with the details of how to make that happen. I want Microsoft to write that infrastructure for me because they're so good at it. So it does not depend. I want to accept and receive messages, messages I know what they look like, right. and how they get serialized and deserialized, and to make that all versioning, um, the, the, the versioning of that XML work well, I want, the, I want the vendors to handle that. Yeah. No depends about it. Right. You can only say it depends if you follow it with the uh, the actual real examples. Yep. So, um, in, on your blog, you talked about this product called N Service Bus. Yep. What's that all about? Well, that's that's really um, just me responding to the pain point of saying, God, I wish I had an enterprise service bus for .NET that did publish subscribe. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, because I really need it in the projects that I work on. I, I really need publish subscribe. And I need it not at a complex, loosely coupled events level. I need it at something a little bit higher than that. And for a while I was saying, okay, well, the web service spec guys are probably going to handle that. And they actually started. And they came out with WS Topics. And then after that they came out with WS Eventing. And then they scrapped WS Topics and put in WS Notification. Then they scrapped both WS Eventing and WS Notification, and they're now working on WS Event Notification. <laughs> and, I'm sure, and I'm sure one of these days it will be ratified. And I'm sure that sometime after that, the vendors will put out something that implements that. And maybe in some of the cases it'll work together. But I have a project that needs to ship in a month. 
Yeah. So what am I going to do about it? Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. The whole eventing thing was something that I brought up with Clemens Vasters on the very first uh, talk we did about SOA, which was, you know, and he really didn't pay all that much attention to it, which, you know, I thought that was having an event-based mechanism, you know, where something, uh, a publish-subscribe basically is really important. And, you know, the the answer is, you know, whether you poll for it or whether you do this, it's really, really no matter. But polling is resource-intensive. You know, poll, oh, yeah. polling is, it, it adds up, especially for the, you know, for the, if you have lots of services, they multiply. What are you going to poll each one of them constantly? Yeah. We're, we're, we're going to have more than a thousand service, services, each one polling all the other thousand. Yeah. Just, <laughs> what could yeah. go wrong? Yeah. I don't see the problem here. Yeah. Our <laughs> network guys are going to be happy with that. Like, what is, <laughs> the, the network guys come screaming at us. What are you guys doing with our networks? They're like, nothing. All the services are waiting. Yeah, they're just That's waiting. Right. They're What's not doing wrong? anything. They're not doing anything. <laughs> it's like the, the, the system isn't doing anything, but it's eating up the entire network. And God forbid if somebody decides to, you know, download a video from YouTube at the same time, because that'll just, you know, screw everything up. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, the idea that we just keep phoning each other. Got anything to do? Nope. Okay. Call you later. Phone back again. You know, the whole, the, I'm, I'm liking this UDP thing because, you know, the whole reliability thing can be totally circumvented with a simple acknowledgement. You know, hey, did you get this thing I just sent you? Yeah, I got it. Oh, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm aware of, of, of those solutions. And the thing is that what do you do between the time that you sent it and the time that you're waiting for an act? So you're, you're sitting around and you're waiting. Okay, so a second went by. Did he get my message? I don't know. Let's wait. Two seconds go by. Let's retry it. Right. You now you're again. thinking of... Another, another second goes by. What are those like, timeout thresholds? Right. So, so you're waiting and waiting and waiting. And you're like, well, from a business perspective, I should have returned a response by now. So w- w- what do I respond? That the other guy isn't available? Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I'll say that. I'll throw an exception, and I'll return a response. So I do that. Half a second later, I get two responses. Right. What do I do with those? Um, no, I know. I mean, so, a, re- a retry mechanism is is got to be part of it. I mean, you know? Oh, yeah, it is a part gotta of it. It's got to be part. It, and it's got to it be almost part. Hole. Yeah, it does. And and I'm th- I know what you're saying. It, it It's crossing the boundary between the business realm and the and the infrastructure realm. And, yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough problem that, to solve. Well, well, the thing is that in this sort of distributed world, you don't really know what's up with the other guy, right? You send them a message. You don't know if they're down, if they're busy, 
if they're working on your message and they're going to give you a response in just a second, so just wait a little bit more, you don't know any of that. You can't know that at runtime. Because if you try to do that, you'll end up with a thousand services polling each other to say, how are you doing? Are you busy? Right. Are you being served? And, and, that's a, and that just doesn't work. And so, so what this really does is saying, well, at the end of the day, the only kind of communication mechanism that, will, that, that really makes any sense is just one-way messaging. And everything else has to be built on top of that. And, and what it means is everything else has to be built on top of that means everything becomes long-running workflow in order to handle all those situations. In that I got a request, I sent a request to somebody else, I wait for two seconds, and then I send a response, right? So that yeah. works great until my server crashes in the middle of those two seconds. Then what happens to my workflow, right? So to make this thing robust, to make it work in web farm scenarios, in order to make it... Uh, so even if other services are a bit slow in responding, or if I get late responses, or if the same message gets sent, gets sent twice, the system will be able to handle that. Yeah, and that means that I have to be very, very careful, careful in how I design my messages, so that I can send them as many times as is necessary, and the service will not charge the customer two or three times for the same thing. There's got to be a way to do it. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm just thinking about this now as we're talking, and I'm going to think about that for a little while. Okay, so end service bus is me saying, God, I wish I had an infrastructure that could help me with these difficult problems. Yeah, something that that that, that would say um, make it easier for me to to have these long running workflows happen all the time and be fast and to have them be, by default, asynchronous one-way messaging. Right. That, that's what I wanted. That's what I needed. And uh, after waiting for some time to, to see what, what would come out of Redmond, and I didn't see it happening. I, I had very high hopes uh, for Indigo, uh, that, that it would support it. And when I found out that it didn't, I just sort of, you know, broke and I said, okay, you know, uh, I'll build something of my own, and I'll base it on, on top of MSMQ. Because MSMQ gives me that durable messaging. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. You know, I see the battle's always going to be that when you get into the architecture phase, business insists on absolute reliability of messaging. Oh, no. Everything has to always get every message. We cannot wait for anything. And really going to have to work on the cost of that, really defining what the return on investment for that absolute reliability is. Just like I, I get the same argument when they say, oh, yeah, no, the database can't even be down for a second. It has to always be up. And the price difference between up 100% and up 99% is an extra quarter million dollars. Right. Then they suddenly think 99% doesn't seem so bad. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I just um, you know, The IT guy in me is taking over now, and I'm thinking about how could I define the cost of completely reliable messaging versus almost reliable messaging? Well, like we all know, there is no 100%. And the whole issue is saying, okay, well, you know, some things are going to get lost sometime. So first of all, let's design the system around 
yeah. uh, assuming that that's going to happen. That's what it's all about. And make it work in that case. And if it doesn't happen, then the system will just run that much faster and smoother. Rather than basing our entire architecture and design on protocols and technologies that assume everything will be okay all the time. Right. And when the slightest thing has the slightest hiccup, just everything goes haywire. I totally agree, Udi. That's 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 what makes the best sense. And this is what I was thinking when I told you I was thinking about it, is that there's got to be something up at the business level that architecturally can handle those kinds of hiccups. Yeah. And, well, and I don't know what those are. I don't know whether it's like a... You know, a, a summary at the end of the day, you know, here's everything you should have gotten, or it's uh, uh, something. I'm not sure what well, that is. Well, I, the way that I view it is just everything is a long-running workflow, and those failure scenarios are just a bunch of other steps in it. So, I, I mean, if I have uh, a scenario, if I'm, uh, if I'm a bank or if I'm someone that, that wants to do to accept loan applications and I go talk to three partners and I'm supposed to return the best response out of all three and one of them never gets back to me, what does that mean? That means that I'm not going to ever return any responses. Well, obviously right. not. So, so you, you sort of come to the business guy and say, um, well, we just found out that one of our external web services just never gets back to us. What do we do? And they're like, oh, okay. Um, then give the best one out of the three with a limit of five seconds. Yeah. Like, and then I say, okay, but what if none of them respond to us? Right. And this is sort of the back and forth that I was talking about before. That we sort of, the, the way we sort of come to them, is that we keep throwing these failure scenarios at them. They look, we, we got technology to do whatever you guys want. Just say what it is that you guys want. And and from our perspective, it's just another message that gets sent back and forth. Yeah. So when I receive that loan uh, that, that that loan request, so I send out. Uh, in essence, what I do is I publish uh, uh, a loan uh, a loan request of my own that all my subscribers are listening to. And every time I get a response, I just save that with my original workflow, and I open up a timer, uh, a persistent timer. And when that timer goes, I just send a response. And to do this sort of scenario with end service bus, it's pretty simple. Because I realize that that's what I'm doing all the time. All my services behave like that. Receive a request, start a workflow, send out a whole bunch of other messages. When, though, when I get responses, have those responses head back to that original workflow and, you know, just keep the thing pumping. And, and and that's why I harp so much about SOA and workflow. And, well, the big thing that, that sort of, it, it pisses me off in a way, in the way that um, a lot of the vendors are are touting SOA is saying, well, create these tiny little services, and we're going to have this huge man in the middle, and you're going to do all your orchestration there. Oh, man, say, that's well, not know, SOA. That, that, that doesn't sound very scalable. It doesn't scale. And it doesn't, right? And, of course, it's just hell to manage. Saying, oh, I have an idea. Let's take all the logic from all our thousands of services and put it in one place. And then start trying to reuse everything. And then you get, like, these huge orchestration diagrams that fill up entire walls. Saying, oh, that's much better. And then the business guys say, oh, we got to just change one little thing now. 
and the whole <laughs> system just falls over and everything stops working and, and there's really no way to maintain that. So th- that, that, if anything, I'd have to say is one of the biggest SOA anti-patterns that I've seen. Um, I, I'm not even sure if I'd call it SOA, but if, if anybody comes to your project and says, you know, just do all your orchestration in one place and create tiny services, you know, just, just kick him out the door. Yeah, <laughs> all you're doing is creating a lot of messaging to do little grains of work. So the messaging becomes a huge percentage of the total processing overhead for a given transaction. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But, but also you, you have the problem of, well, you know, your sales guys and your accounting guys look at the world in very different ways. Right. I mean, when accounting guys so are, are talking about clients and accounts, they're talking about very different things from the sales guys. Now, if we have an orchestration that is using those concepts from a sales and it heads over into the accounting orchestration and well, you know, they're all in the same place. The chance something is going to get mixed up is going to be very, very high. Right. That's going to be a CF, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, th- so that kind of level of breaking things up is, is absolutely necessary. And, and with that, I, I would definitely say that uh, getting back to what, what Roger Sessions mentioned, um, you really need to, to, to break things up into increasingly um, tighter levels of granularity, and you can't have too many at each level. And it's and that's the really right the level. way to get at simplicity. It's the right level, not just the smallest possible level. It's the right level. Well, actually, yeah. the, the way that I view SOA as a process is that um, we don't just stop um, our analysis at services. Which is like one of the things when I saw the, um, I think it was uh, Whitehorse or the, the application level de- designer when it came out and say, okay, you got a service. Now double click on it and you got code. And like, no, 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 no. This service is way too big to jump right from here's my service to let's go implement it. There are a whole bunch of stages we got to go through in the middle. So from yeah. services, we do sort of a stepwise refinement down to business components. And business components capture things like SLAs at a certain level. Right. Say that, uh, say that I'm uh, a mobile phone carrier, okay? And I have, I got your, you got your regular clients and then you got your business clients, right? And they're all saying the same things to you. But the way that, that you respond and the time that you respond to business customers is quite a bit different than that way you respond to your regular customers. So you have the same message coming into the service, but depending on who the client who the client is, it has to be handled differently. So that sort of level of sort of taking the business domain and breaking it down into things that are a little bit smaller gives you a better way to say, well, you know, well, how much should I spend on the messaging infrastructure? Yeah. I say, well, you know, because we have to respond so quickly to our business customers and we don't want to lose any of their data. They're, we're willing to splurge on a messaging infrastructure. But the difference is because all the private customers are not going to be sending messages on that backbone, we're not going to have to handle such a high load. So we won't have to spend as much. For our private customers, we'll give them the regular, non-durable, non-ACK messaging channel that's really cheap because we don't have to come up with a high SLA for it. And that helps us with choosing which technology to use where. 
Right. So, you know, from services, we get down to business components and we add a whole bunch of uh, non-functional requirements to decide, you know, what are we going to use where? And the same thing we do for business components, obviously, like, okay, so we got our private customers and we got our business customers, but not every single thing that they say to us has to be durable. So we want to break that down up into autonomous components, from business components to autonomous components. So we get this sort of stepwise refinement, and I got uh, like a whole bunch of articles on my blog where I talk about this all the time, and because it is really important, how you sort of go from services and you, and you break those down even more, even more, into get, until you get to something that uh, you can really work with. For instance, like um, in WCF, you have the ability in WCF to listen on a bunch of endpoints, right? Yep. So you can have one listening, you can have the same service listening on an MSMQ endpoint and listening on an HTTP endpoint, right? Now, for me, I sort of view it and say, well, yeah, that may be the case, but for me, it makes a difference if this is a private customer. If it's a business customer, um, I'm going to be using a different channel. So I'm probably also going to want a different process that's going to be handling that. I don't want the same process listening on both of them. Because if a deluge of private customers come in, then the service, well, you know, all its service instances will be busy on that, and I won't be able to handle any business customers. So I'm going to need to have separate processes for those. So it's sort of this marriage of technology, what I can do with the technology versus what I should do with the technology. Hmm. Udi, we've right. talked quite a bit uh, today about sort of the 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 do's and don'ts and more of the don'ts, I think, which is really important. Well, if there's one big mistake that people make, whether it's a conceptual mistake or an implementation mistake that you see over and over again that we haven't talked about. What is it? Um, that, that That's a big one because it's really domain specific um, and it's really impacted with the way uh, the developers in that domain are used to looking at the world. Now, like you got certain developers that um, if it doesn't go into the database, it does, they don't think that they did anything. So everything they do, they work with the database. And, of course, they create systems that the database is the bottleneck and they can't fix it because their whole design is based around that. And you got other people which are all about HTTP, like the REST crowd, to use the R word, representational state transfer. And that's all the rage now with Web 2.0, so they want to use HTTP for everything. But it's not reliable. So uh, I'd have to say that, that, that the biggest problem is, is the same thing that hits projects all the time. It's, um, you know, it, it's the problem of assumptions. Assumptions make an ass out of you and me. Yes. Right? <laughs> As and, Felix Unger once and demonstrated. Those, <laughs> and, and those unchecked assumptions that say, you know, well, that's the way we've always done things around here. Yeah. Like, well, well, look, we've got we've got a five year history of failure. Um, maybe if we keep working the same way, it'll change magically all by itself. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a very smart strategy. Right, right. So, so, so I'd have to say that that the biggest thing with SOA or, or with anything else is sort of saying, well, you know, look really in, in detail at the problem at hand and toss all the assumptions out the window and start looking for the, the, the most appropriate solution for that problem. Um, and and for, the, for the vast majority of Microsoft developers out there, that means um, 
don't do WCF is my hammer. Now where's my nail? <laughs> yeah, everything's a nail. <laughs> well, uh, Udi, that brings us to the end of another great show. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Carl Richard. Is there anything uh, anything you want to put out there before we hang up? Um, Shout out no, or something? Not, um, I, I just uh, say that there's uh, uh, a book that's being written by uh, my good friend and uh, Arnon Rotem Galoz, uh, another fellow Israeli, and he's been big in the SOA movement, and me and him have been working together quite a bit. And he's putting a book out on SOA patterns, so I'd say check it out. And um, I assume we'll have a link in the show notes to where that's going to be. Excellent. Well, thanks again. It's been a pleasure. And My a pleasure. Very enlightening. And we will see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.